This is New Classical Tracks from listener-supported American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for this show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. with Israeli-born American pianist Shai Wozner recently, and he shared some really incredible insight about Beethoven's Diabelli variations. That's what he features on his new recording. So here's the deal. Anton Diabelli was a publisher and a composer, and he had the idea of getting several composers to each write one variation on a little waltz. And then he was going to publish it in a collection. Well, Shai Wozner says that Beethoven took that very basic waltz and, in true Beethoven fashion, transformed it into something magnificent. We'll hear more about that through the step-by-step process that Shai Wozner shares on this week's edition of New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. pianist Shai Wozner about his latest recording, which celebrates Beethoven's Diabelli variations. Thanks for joining me, Shai. Thank you, Julie. Good to be with you. Well, first of all, how are you? I haven't talked to you for a while. I'm fine. Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's a difficult, you know, it's a difficult week, difficult current events, uh, obviously, but uh, trying to stay positive. And, And music is definitely a big part of that, that I think helps all of us to stay positive and optimistic, even when the news isn't. <laughs> Are you in New York City? Is that what you call home base? Yes, yes. And I know that you're teaching at Juilliard then as on the piano faculty. Yes. I know that you also studied at Juilliard and Emmanuel Axe was one of your teachers. Right. And I was just thinking to myself, because uh, he's quite a character, and I was just wondering what was most memorable for you when you had a chance to work with Emmanuel Axe? Oh, um, well, it was a wonderful, wonderful treat, and we're still, you know, close friends. I think I think that the amazing thing about his teaching and about his music making in general is really that everything seems to be very natural. Nothing is fussy. <laughs> nothing, nothing is um, overblown. Nothing, you know, um, everything is kind of just feels right, and and it feels healthy too. There's a healthy aspect to the music making, and and certainly very supportive as a teacher. So yeah, I'm very grateful for that relationship. You just mentioned um, events in the news, and I know that you were born in Israel. And you also, though, have lived in the U.S. longer than you were ever in Israel. And I know that during the pandemic, this recording, which celebrates Beethoven and his variations, um, The Little Waltz by Diabelli, took on a different role and you talked about that uh, with respect to immigration and how we're all immigrants. And before you dive into that, I mean, I do want to ask you um, if you have family and friends still in Israel yes. and if they are safe. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, yes, I do have family. My wife has family there, and I, we have many friends there. And, and thankfully, they're all they're all safe. But of course, we're we're constantly worried and and and. Uh, Anxiously following the news twenty four seven, and uh, hope that this this nightmare is is over very very soon, without too much more suffering that's already been inflicted. 
And it has to be a huge distraction, I would imagine, for you and your family. Yes, yes, you know, it is, I have to say. I mean, when we were coming of age uh, in Israel, sort of late 90s, there there was a different feel in the air. Um, you know, in the mid-90s especially, you know, we thought things were going to be okay. It was moving in the right direction towards peace with the Palestinians. And of course, as we all know, it turned out differently. And And somehow, I think because... Because I was maybe around 18 at the time when, when things were fairly hopeful, somehow that stuck with me. And I'm still waiting for that to happen. And I, I, haven't, I haven't lost hope that, you know, one day the two sides will come to their senses and, and somehow find the only really possible solution um, to coexist together. Because, you know, neither side is going anywhere, as we all know. Um, it sometimes l- seems differently when you're over there. You know, it looks different when, when you're in it. It's a little easier to, to say that when, when you're looking from the outside a little bit. But um, I, I firmly believe that and, and always have. How has music helped you to remain hopeful? Well, in, I would say in two ways. Um, first of all, music is just notes. As Buzoni once, I think it was Buzoni who said that, that music is just sonorous air. <laughs> that, you know, the air vibrates, that's all there is to it. It's no more than that, um, technically speaking. Um, so just by nature of being something very abstract, inherently abstract, um, it's an escape. It can be an escape and, and sort of a welcome escape from, from the craziness of, of you know, human, the human condition. But in a more concrete way, I would say, actually, it, it's because music offers so many chances and so many examples of optimism. Uh, you know, we're talking about Beethoven. I mean, he's the ultimate optimist. Uh, I think he's he's the patron saint of the idealistic artist. And and his ideals were, you know, because of the, the place and the time that he came of age, you know the, the the ideals of of humanism and 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 optimism and you know universal brotherhood all of those things we hear in his ninth symphony were very much part of people's daily lives i mean this was this was all the rage when he was was when he was a teenager in bonn and then in vienna you know they really thought that this is where the world was heading and and better times were coming and 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 i think you you can breathe that idealism and, and, and optimism in his music. I mean, we often, nowadays, we, we kind of think of him a lot of the time as the suffering musician because he was deaf and because he was, you know, his personal life was so turbulent and difficult and in so many ways. But I, I actually think that more often than not, his, his music is really about the ideal that you need to strive for, you know, self-betterment. And so it's very, it's very pronounced. Um, and and through him, I think, you know, you see that, with, of course, with other composers, but no one that I can think of from the great composers was so devoted to sort of this, this um, you know, 100% um, commitment to, to pursuing truth and, 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 you know, and kind of like fighting for it and, and finding it in every possible theme, every possible piece, you know, whether it's a small chamber piece, a piano sonata or a big symphony, you know, you always have this feeling of, you know, looking for some, some 
indivisible truth and and the ideal of existence. You know that things can be better and they need to be better, and you need to work for that and and always look for that. Um, and so I think I think in music, of course, not only in Beethoven but especially in Beethoven, you have a chance of of sort of living with that in a very intimate way because. You no, know, it's a piano piece. It's it's a very intimate thing, and I found that I found that very nourishing. And you did look to Beethoven during the lockdown initially, and you took this little waltz that we're going to talk about more in depth, and you turned it into something unique by having other composers also, you know, give a contemporary look at this concept. Can you talk a little bit about that and then how that led you to this recording? Yeah, so um, just before the pandemic, I had this uh, little idea that was indirectly inspired by the uh, Diabelli Variations, um, just to give our listeners a little background. So, the, you know, the Diabelli Variations, Diabelli himself, who was a publisher, had the idea of getting composers to write different variations, one variation per composer on his little waltz. and then publish them as a collection. And so I thought of doing a small version of that. I mean, he, he approached 50 composers. Um, I thought getting five composers, but instead of giving them a musical theme as a variation, I, I, I wanted to give them a quote, um, something that was very much on my mind because, because at the time, as you mentioned before, uh, this was kind of like around the time that I realized I'd crossed that miles, personal milestone of having lived in the U.S., first resident and then and citizen, more than in my native Israel. And so I thought, you know, am I still an immigrant? What does that mean to be an immigrant? You know, how can, how can we give a musical take on that whole mindset and that whole existence of, of immigrants? And I thought I gave each of the composers this quote by Roosevelt uh, from a famous speech from 1938, where he says that he reminds his listeners his listeners, by the way, were the daughters of the American Revolution. So it's an organization that back then was very, very anti-immigration. And he just casually reminded them, you know, let's not forget, um, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, uh, remember, actually, he said, remember always that you and I, uh, all of us, are descendants of immigrants. Uh, and and I thought, how about giving this quote as a theme instead of a waltz? <laughs> and... And giving it to composers of different backgrounds, different generations also. That was very important to me. And see what they do with it. And I encouraged each of them to pick someone to write about who, who is an immigrant, um, either a personal acquaintance or somebody famous, doesn't matter. And they came back with really fascinating results. The five composers, Derek Burmel, Wang Lu, Anthony Chung, John Harbison, and Vijay Iyer. And so we formed this kind of like little suite it got delayed a little bit because of the pandemic. Um, by the time that it all came out, I decided, you know, to just record them together. So there was a document of that. And, and of course, the, all, all proceeds from that recording, uh, which is available for streaming, go to a New York City-based organization that supports undocumented uh, workers and immigrants uh, called Team NYC. And and so, yeah, that's that's how that project sort of originated. Um, it really became actually a piece. I mean, I, I, I performed it several times and, and as a piece, you know, as a, as, a, as a suite, as if it was written by one composer, even though, of course, the styles are very different. 
And the pieces really seem to work together, um, even though the, the individual composers didn't know the other what the others were doing. It was all done completely separately. They knew about the others, but not the actual pieces. So I thought that would be fascinating to see what happens in the end. Does it actually work as a single piece? And, and it does. It really does. And is that available? Did you say it's only a streamed recording? Yes, it's, a, it's an EP, what they call EP, uh, you know, extended play CD. So because the whole collection is about 31 minutes or something like that. And this does connect to the original concept of the Diabelli Variations, because, yes, as you said, other composers were asked to do things, but then there was a connection to why Beethoven was writing these, right? Yes, well, that's that's another aspect of this, because there was some sort of a... Um, well, I would say, first of all, it's, it's more Beethoven's idealism that inspired me to do something that's a little bit naive and idealistic, perhaps. But, um, you know, that's that's definitely a, a, a nod to Beethoven. But in the case of the Diabelli project itself, Diabelli himself, the publisher, also donated all the proceeds from his publication to charity. At the time, it was uh, for orphans and, and widows of, of uh, the Napoleonic Wars. And so, yeah, there, there was sort of a little bit of an altruistic aspect to that, to that project as well. Um, but not... Um, not directly connected to Beethoven, because Beethoven, what Beethoven did was, of course, something entirely different. He was asked to provide one variation. And at first, according to legend, he dismissed the whole project and decided, you know, oh, this is beneath me. I, mean, I don't need this. I, have, I don't have time for this. I never quite bought that explanation that that he just hated the theme, the, the waltz that Diabelli sent him, and that he didn't want to be just another composer, you know, among 50 others. I, again, maybe I'm naive, but I think there is really more to it because, first of all, Instead of providing one variation, he came back with a magnum opus of 33. <laughs> now, why would he spend the time, why would he bother to write his longest piece for piano, the longest piece, the most ambitious piece for his own instrument, if he hated the theme so much, and if he thought the project was, was uh, you know, so not worthwhile? There's got to be a better reason. And I think that the other reason, the, for me the real reason, strikes a very, very fundamental note in, you know, as to what Beethoven's music is all about. Here he has this waltz, which is definitely very basic, very simple, almost simplistic even. And I can, I can see Beethoven sort of looking at it uh, and, and thinking, you know, well, this is really very basic, but that means I can do anything with it. I can take it anywhere. And I think that either he immediately decided that or there was a moment, an, an aha moment there. But at some point he just decided, I'm going to show the world what you can do with even the most basic, commonplace musical theme. 
I will show everybody that through sheer musical imagination, and 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 it's more importantly, uh, th- you know, through musical transformation, I can create a sublime piece of music, a monumental piece of music, out of this nothing of a theme. Because that's really what what his music is about, not the material that you start with, which in many of his pieces, include, I mean, his own original pieces, tends to be very simple, you know, just a little chord or just a couple of notes, really. I mean, nothing, nothing dramatic, nothing very uh, sophisticated. The initial cell that he starts with, it's what he does with it that is staggering, that is amazing, that is that it leaves us sort of awe-inspired and our jaws on the floor, you know? It's what he does with it. And I'm sure that he was aware of that, that that was not just a trick. He didn't treat this as a musical feat. I'm convinced that he saw this as a way to channel that in life, what you start with doesn't matter. It's what you do with it, what you do with yourself, what you do with the world, you know, your place in the world. I really think that by extension, this is the source of the idealism in, in Beethoven's music. Not the initial material, but your choices, the extent of your imagination and your vision. And and the Diabelli, in a way, the, this, this piece, more than perhaps any other piece of Beethoven's, is about that idea, because it's an extreme case. You know, in other pieces, the impulse comes from him. He has the initial idea. It's his motif, you know, pa 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 pa. He came up with that, you know. <laughs> he wasn't given that by a publisher. In this case, it's a rare example. The, the impetus for writing the piece doesn't come from him, but from someone else. So I think it's even more of an example of how he, he wants to show that, that he can do everything imaginable within nothing of a theme. We call these variations. However, on the score, Beethoven did use the German word for transformation, which you just made reference to. So he really was thinking of it as this is a transformation of this melody. I th- I think so. I, you know, because yeah, in, in German you can you can call something variationen, variations, or Veränderungen, which is also a word for transformation. It's both a word for word for variations, musical variations. But if you want to see it also, yeah, you could also see it as transformation. But even, you know, beyond the title itself, I think what's fascinating, you know, perhaps this is a bit of a musical history nerdy <laughs> observation, but for those of us, you know, who, who, who like piano variations, sesta variation, up until then, up until uh, the Diabelli variations, you know, the tradition of writing a set of variations leaves the theme in the center. In other words, you take a whatever it is, a tune, a folk song, an aria from an opera, and then you add variations to it that are more decorative than anything. They can be wonderfully entertaining. They can be very inventive. But the feeling throughout the piece, you know, for the listener, is the theme stays as the core of the piece. It's, it's, it's always in the center, and the variations are kind of like surrounding it. Um, even the Goldberg, which is, of course, such a magnificent masterpiece, even there... 
you know, you go back in the end and you hear the aria again. And and certainly with all the Mozart variations and with Beethoven's own sets of variations, you always feel like that's really the, the basis for the whole the whole piece and, and everything else is kind of like surrounding it only. Here we have something profoundly different. The theme is only a point of departure. Once you leave the theme, once you hear it once, and it's very short, it's shockingly short, um, already from the first variation, Beethoven is kind of like almost stomping on it and almost casting it aside because the very first variation is is this this sort of march. Now, you, we started with the waltz and the very first variation is a march. I mean, it could not be more contradictory because the waltz is in three. Marches in two or four in this case. That's already kind of like abandoning the walls. Like where where did the walls go? And I think he's making a point. He's only using sort of very basic elements of the theme, um, like chords, you know, the harmonies, the structure of it, the number of bars. But the actual music could not be more different. In other words, this is really not a variation, but a transformation. It's, and already from, from step one, from variation one, um, you're co completely somewhere else. And yet underneath, there is always the elements from the theme, except each variation is like a whole other world. They're not decorations. They're not there to support the theme and kind of like put it on a pedestal, but really to transform it. With each variation, not just the last one, but with each and every one, like, you didn't think we could end up here, did you? You know, with that little waltz, right? How about this? You'd never imagine, you know, that waltz could actually lead to this. That's really the point of, of the whole thing. And it's a, it's a series of miniatures, if you will, rather than just variations. They're, each of them is a, like a character piece. It's a whole journey that he constructs from these miniatures. Can you talk a little bit more about that journey? What is the journey he's creating? Well, psychologically, I think it's the most fascinating because the first, I would say the first, first half even, or certainly the first 13 variations, which is a lot, um, it's a big chunk of the piece, are mostly kind of like in the tongue-in-cheek vein. They're more humorous and perhaps on the lighter side. Of course, still very different from each other, but the, the tone, the, the mindset is a little bit closer to the waltz, which is really quite you know, lively and, and, and doesn't take itself too seriously. And then there's a turning point. there is variation 14 which is very slow and much longer than any of the others that preceded it all of a sudden we're oh it's like a reminder you forgot you this is late beethoven this is this is philosophical stuff <laughs> um and and it's like a meditation i mean you, the time completely stands still After that, in a way, the piece is never quite 
the same anymore. There's still lots of humorous variations, but but it gets much more ambitious after that. The, the structure of that journey is also amazing because he divides it into two. And because he knows he's going to have 33 variations, and you can't divide 33 in half, you're going to, you know, in music, it's, it's a little difficult. So it would have been variation 16 and a half. So 16 and 17 are essentially joined together. Like tweets into, into one variation because 16 and a half is exactly the midpoint of the piece. And then there is the second half of the piece, which clearly digs deeper. It becomes all of a sudden more abstract. There is one variation that is arguably the most cryptic uh, page in the history of music. For me, it's obvious that it's on purpose. In other words, there is no way that that variation, variation um, 20, there is no way that that can sound conventional or normal in any style, in any period. I think if it was written yesterday, it would still feel innovative and, and, and kind of like enigmatic because that's exactly the point. Um, and, and he has other variations that are homages to other styles, of course. Um, so it, he suddenly, in the second half, he suddenly expands the scope of the historic sort of scope of the piece. Like he, he clearly opens it up um, and, 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 and there's a nod to earlier styles and, and, and other styles that perhaps haven't been invented yet. And then as you go along towards the end, there is yet another sort of important turning point. trio of variations in C minor, which all of a sudden completely changed the tone for the whole piece. And it's like he's opening his heart to you. You know, this is a variation 29 and 30 and, and 31, where it's like the most touching and most personal confession that you can imagine. Um, and especially variation 31. It's probably the closest we can ever get to being in the room with him as he's improvising. This must have been an improvisation that he just jotted down on paper. It's, it's really unbelievable. It's like just you and the music. just you and Beethoven's endless imagination. In hearing you talk about 
these variations, Shai. It's almost like, and maybe this is what you're saying, we can really get to know Beethoven just by listening to these 33 variations. Yes, because like I said, you know, there's both a public aspect to this piece and a very personal aspect to this piece. I think the public aspect is, like I said before, he wants to show the world how much he can come up with on one basic theme, you know? Kind of like a, a, a display of a tour de force of, of, of compositional invention for the ages. <laughs> but then there is the, the personal aspect of this. He explores his own music. He sets challenges for himself. He writes for his own instrument, you know, the longest piece that he ever wrote. And in the end, especially like I said, before, just before the very end of the piece, you have that moment of intense, intense intimacy. I really, it's, it's, it's rare even for Beethoven, even among his own works, to, to feel like it's so spontaneous and it's so kind of like in the moment. Every, every note is, is, you know, meaningful. And, and so in that moment, you know, Variation 31, you feel perhaps the most personal you, you get with, with Beethoven. You mentioned that he knew he was going to create 33 variations. That was very intentional? Well, we don't know when he decided that, because there are two phases to the piece. In 1819, he uh, sketched the first batch of variations, about 11, I think. And then he left it for a while, wrote the Misa Solemnis, which is a huge piece. But then he went back to it, which is fascinating, because again, you know, how does that go with the explanation that he didn't care for the waltz and he didn't think it was a worthy project, right? He actually went back to it 40 years later and added another 14 variations, basically the rest of the piece. Um, we don't know exactly when he decided it would be 33, but there is something symbolic in that number because he does have another set of, an, an earlier piece that is 32 variations. <laughs> so perhaps this is something kind of like between him and himself, just kind of like saying to himself, I'm going to surpass myself you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see how far I can go. You know? Perhaps, I mean, it's just, just my interpretation of it. I think he wouldn't place the centerpiece, the you know, linking variation 16 and 17 like that, if he didn't know that that was going to be the half point of the piece. He realized that because they're so individual, so different from each other, he had to create unity, structural unity overall. And that's the real, the, the miracle of this piece. It's, it's, at the same time, so in the moment so much, you know, every variation is radically different, and yet you still feel a sense of a journey and, and, and a whole. You know, it, they do join together to form a whole, and, and, um, a complete trajectory. One of the things that I noticed, especially in the first half of the, the variations, is there are several where, you know, you kind of made the comment where he was like, oh, no, this isn't where it ends. And he clearly is saying that. Like, it just, it's like... You couldn't stop there. You've got to keep going. Can you give me some examples of where that happens in that first set of the variations? Um, yeah, I think the, the beginning, uh, the, the first few, you have that march, that kind of like stomping, stomping march that sort of sets it up and says, okay, here we go, you know, time to, time to get going. <laughs> and then, but then after that, you have the second and third and fourth variation, and fifth variation. All of those actually do follow sort of the waltz lilt. Like, they're, they're all basically different kinds of waltzes. They're not 
similar to Diabelli's worlds. I mean, other than you know the harmonies and the structure, but but uh, the, the the vibe, the, the character is really very very individual, very different. But they are only three, four time, and they're waltz like, and they do form kind of like a, like a continuum. It starts with this kind of like umpa umpa umpa, um, very simple, very just nothing beyond that. Except I like to think of it as this is like an Escher painting, and if Escher wrote an umpa umpa. Um, it would be like this because sometimes the pa sounds like the um, and then the um sounds like the pa. Like you're not quite sure. Wait, where is the b? <laughs> He plays with your your perception of reality a little bit, like where is the actual beat? Um, but then after that, they they are a little simpler, um, and they get faster and faster. So it's like he's squeezing the 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 waltzness out of them until until the end. It's really quite a fast one and, and, and very difficult to play. Um, so he sometimes he has single ones that, that are not connected to anything. And then sometimes he would have a group of three like that, um, or rather four, two, three, four, and five, that almost form like one continuum and then, and then an abrupt ending. And then he just takes a sharp turn and, and, and comes up with something entirely different. Here's one other thought, and I know that it's hard to, you know, which are your favorites, but of the 33 variations, which ones do you really love playing? You always look forward to playing them. Definitely 16 and 17, the two twins that are connected. Um, that just feels like such a triumph. It's completely boundless and, and like free and, and, and exuberant. Really fun to play. 22. Because again, this is a this is a musical nerd moment, but 22 is one of the really rare Perhaps even the only one, I, I can, right now I can't think of anything that is a quote of another composer's music in Beethoven. Now, I'm not talking about using other composers' themes for variations, that's different. I'm talking about in the piece itself, I can't really think, unless I'm missing something, of any piece where Beethoven uses an acknowledged melody or any idea of someone else's in the piece itself, in the body of the piece. Variation 22 is an homage to Mozart. And in the score, it actually says that, that, you know, this is in the style of the first aria of Don Giovanni. And it quotes the aria and then takes it somewhere else based on Diabelli's theme. So it's a mix, it's a mashup of, of Don Giovanni and Diabelli. He knew that when people heard that, at that moment of the piece, people, and, and it comes um, after really very, very abstract variations, very difficult variations. And all of a sudden you have this sort of smile and, and it's like, huh, name that tune. Um, and, and, and so that, that's an amazing moment actually in the piece and, and also what he does with it. 
Another one that I love playing is, like I said, the number 31, the, the slow one. Fantasia, Baroque style Fantasia meets Chopin, um, <laughs> who was just a kid. I mean, he's, he's foreshadowing Chopin in that variation. And of course, the last one. Because the very last variation, number 33, it's really, it's like, how do you end a piece like this, right? If, if the whole point is to show the world that your musical imagination knows no limits, then what's the last variation? Like, how do you actually end it? Um, and that's, I think, that's really fascinating because what he does is, first of all, the variation is a minuet, which is not a coincidence because you, we started with a waltz, we went through all this stuff and we end up with a minuet, which isn't the predecessor of the waltz. But it's not just a minuet, it's a minuet kind of like up there. You know, it's not down here on earth. It's kind of like a heavenly minuet. It's almost like, I, I, I sometimes think it's like, he killed the waltz, the Abelli's waltz, and it went up to heaven. And now we meet it in heaven. And it's been trans transfigured into a minuet. Um, and it's all very chirpy and kind of like angelic. Um, you hear flutes. You hear birds. It's very, very special sort of sound to it. It's all up there in the piano, like very high. And 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 then there is a coda. You know, at the end of that variation, there is this coda. And in that coda, it almost sounds like he's about to start another variation. He has like more ideas. And it's just, he's kind of like, displaying these these random ideas kind of like fragments and it's the feeling is almost like you see i could go on and on and on and and, and i have more ideas but but that's it boom the last chord and it's like you know and it shuts the gates of heaven i always feel like you know we're up there we still hear oh we could go there there's so much more that's possible right it's like endless possibilities and then he's like all right enough we're all going home yeah <laughs> It's both an ending and a sort of an invitation to eternity. <laughs> pianist Shai Wozner going in-depth into Beethoven's Diabelli variations this week on new classical tracks from American Public Media. Thanks to Valerie Kaler. She's our producer for new classical tracks. And I'm Julia Macher.